0: The honorable chief justice and associate justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina is now sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court.
1: Good morning. Uh, we'll now hear the case of Harper at all versus hall at all. But uh, given the number of attorneys and the unique, uh, time, uh that we have allowed. I'm going to. Just ask all the attorneys to keep up with your own time, uh, including your reserve rebuttal time. Uh, what that rebuttal time may be. Uh, that being said, we will hear from the appellant.
2: May it please the court. I'm Stanton Jones, and I represent the Harper plaintiffs. After me, Mr. Schaff will argue for the NCLCV plaintiffs, and Ms. Riggs for common cause. I'd like to reserve two minutes for rebuttal. The North Carolina Constitution establishes a democracy in which all political power is derived from the people and must be founded upon their will only. This court thus declared long ago that this is a government of the people in which the will of the people legally expressed must govern. Central to this democratic form of government are free and fair elections in which all citizens have equal voting power. Every voter gets an equal say in who will represent their interests, and the will of the people as a whole determines which party controls the levers of power. But in a partisan gerrymander, the leaders already in power manipulate the district lines to subvert the will of the people. They classify voters on the basis of their political beliefs and then systematically sort the minority party's voters into districts to minimize their electoral influence. The intent and effect is to predetermine the outcome of elections and entrench the majority party in power regardless of how the people vote. The trial court in this case denounced this practice as incompatible with democratic principles and an abuse of power by the General Assembly worthy of ridicule, derision, and disdain. Those are the trial court's words, and they are true no matter which party does it. North Carolina courts are not powerless to act in the face of such extreme constitutional violations. The state constitution itself guarantees that every person for an injury done shall have remedy by due course of law. And this court has held over and over, for instance, in quorum, that it is the state judiciary that has the responsibility to protect the state constitutional rights of the citizens. That responsibility applies with full force to protecting the democratic will of North Carolina voters. More than two centuries ago, in Bayard v. Singleton, this court first exercised the power to invalidate acts of the General Assembly that violate the state constitution specifically to prevent incumbent legislators from installing themselves in office for life. To say that this court's power dissolves when legislators rig the maps for partisan gain is to ignore the role that this court has long played to say what the law is and demand that it's followed, including in redistricting cases. This court, Your Honors, should reverse the trial court's decision because all three of the challenged maps here are extreme gerrymanders that violate the fundamental rights of millions of North Carolinians, and this court has the power and duty to say so. To begin with, the trial court's unanimous and extensive factual findings are a powerful indictment of these maps and those findings are not clearly erroneous. Based on a mountain of evidence, the trial court found that the maps were drawn both intentionally and effectively to maximize Republican advantage, to ensure Republican dominance in North Carolina's congressional delegation, and to guarantee Republican majorities or supermajorities. In both chambers of the General Assembly for the next decade. That was the intent, and that is the effect.
1: Do, the do, court you, agree found, that, do you agree that um, it's uh, okay for a uh, Assembly to take some interest into account in redistricting?
2: So, Your Honor, in the Stevenson case, Citing the the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Gaffney, this court noted that federal law permits some consideration of partisanship, but the court then immediately said that any such consideration must be in conformity with the state constitution. And, And note that Gaffney didn't involve an attempt to gain partisan advantage, but rather to achieve roughly proportional representation. So when Stevenson Cited Gaffney for the proposition that federal law allows seeking proportional representation. It's certainly not endorsing the view that the state constitution allows partisan gerrymandering to disadvantage the minority party and its voters. Do, Our do you position you is
1: agree that uh, it's okay for there to be some partisan consideration.
2: So, at least under federal law. uh, under Gaffney, the legislature would be permitted to consider partisanship, at least for some purposes. Our position, Your Honor, is that when the General Assembly draws the maps with partisan intent to establish partisan advantage, and the effects of that partisan bias is, in fact, to, uh, to advantage the majority party, that that violates provisions of the state constitution. And here, your honor.
1: Do you believe that there is a fairness requirement in the state constitution?
2: Your honor, the trial court correctly said that our claims and our uh, experts methodologies are not based on any general notions of fairness. It is certainly unfair. It is fundamentally unfair for legislators to rig the maps to dilute the electoral influence and voting power of North Carolina voters. But our claims are not based, um, and our experts' methodologies were not based on general notions of fairness or proportional representation. They were based on conclusive proof, and the trial court's findings in this case, that these maps were intentionally drawn to maximize advantage for Republicans, to dilute the voting power of North Carolina's voting po- uh, Democrats, and that, that is the effect of these maps.
1: Did any of your experts your Honor, use, Did any of your experts use um, uh, statewide uh, votes in legislative races, or did all the experts use statewide votes in uh, uh, other races?
2: To measure the partisanship of both the enacted maps and also the experts' simulated nonpartisan maps, all of the experts on both sides, ours and the legislative defendant's expert, use statewide elections, and that's consistent with the uniform practice of political scientists across the country. There's extensive peer-reviewed literature explaining why uh, political scientists use statewide elections to measure the partisanship of districting maps. And as I say, that's what legislative defendants expert did as well.
1: Do you agree that each election has multiple factors that go into how people choose to vote?
2: Y- yes, Your Honor, every election is is different in both the statewide distribution of the vote and also the, uh, the fraction of the vote uh, secured by each party on a statewide basis. In fact, that's precisely why it's so important when measuring the uh, and, and attempting to quantify the partisan bias of a map to see how the districts perform across a wide range of election environments. And that's exactly what our experts did. And that's what the trial court in this case found when it said repeatedly that these maps exhibit enormous partisan bias across a wide range of election environments, whether Democrats win 47 percent of the statewide vote or 48 percent or 49 percent or 50 percent or 51 percent, whether it's a governor's election or a presidential election or an attorney general race or the commissioner of insurance. In all of those situations, all of the experts analysis, ours and the legislative defendant's own expert, Uh, shows that these maps consistently exhibit enormous pro-Republican bias.
1: Did did any of your experts utilize all of the elections uh, statewide since 2012?
2: Uh, Dr. our, Our expert, Dr. Mattingly, measured the partisanship of the enacted map and his roughly 80,000 simulated maps using 16 statewide elections that I believe date back to at least 2012. Yes, uh, 26, since, since 2016. Uh, the legislative defendants expert, Dr. Barber, uh, used 11 statewide elections dating back. And, and what's so notable about this, Your Honor, and the trial court noted this as well, both our experts and the legislative defendants expert, regardless of which specific prior statewide elections they used or whether they used an index or composite of multiple elections. All of their analyses show the same thing. These maps were intentionally drawn to maximize Republican advantage, and they have that effect in ensuring, in predetermining election outcomes to ensure that Republicans win more seats in both chambers of the General Assembly and in North Carolina's congressional delegation than they would win under virtually any nonpartisan map.
1: So there were 67 statewide elections since 2012. Uh, Republicans won 39 of those, which would be 58.2%. Did anyone, any of your experts take that into account?
2: No, no, Your Honor, and and I would point out that many of those elections were incredibly close. Um, if if Republicans or Democrats win an election by uh, less than a percentage point, that's going to be very significant for measuring the partisanship of the districts. Your Honor, the the court here, the trial court.
1: Council, getting back to my earlier question, with how uh, local. Uh, Legislative uh, races have multiple factors. Uh, Isn't it true that in the local races, the state house and state Senate. uh, Just by nature of the smaller electorates, individuals have a much. clearer understanding of the nature of the candidates. And there are uh, many more, uh, I'll call local personal factors or, or local factors that go into those elections. Isn't that true?
2: Sure, sure, Your Honor. And, And I think the trial court heard all about this at trial and found based on all of the evidence, including our experts analysis and the legislative defendants expert analysis, that these districts consistently across all three of these maps were deliberately drawn to ignore the votes of the people within each district and ensure that Republicans win more seats than they would under any nonpartisan map. Those were the trial courts of <laughs> unanimous factual findings.
1: Isn't it very difficult to predict the outcome of an election? For example, in 2008, uh, the maps were clearly drawn with Democrat partisan intent. And the 2008 election produced uh, uh, 30. Uh, Democrat senators versus 20 Republican, uh, the same uh, margin of. Democrat control in the house, and yet with those same gerrymandered maps in 2010, uh, those numbers flipped. Uh, even given the Republicans, a greater advantage, the same maps, the same precincts, uh, the same uh, voting districts. How would you explain that?
2: Your Your Honor, um, using prior statewide election results, mapmakers have very sophisticated tools to measure the partisanship of districts and predict their performance with with surgical precision. Dr. Hoffler did it last decade. And the trial court in this case found that that is exactly what the legislative defendants, the mapmakers did in this case. I see I've already eaten into my rebuttal time, so I'll reserve the rest of my time.
1: Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from uh, the next appellant.
3: Thank you, and may please the court. Zach Shaw for the NCLCV plaintiffs. Uh, I'm going to try to reserve three minutes for rebuttal if I can. And I'm hoping to make today uh, two points about our political gerrymandering claims and one on our racial vote vote dilution claim. I do, though, before I get there, want to start on one factual point and answer the Chief Justice's question about whether any expert went all the way back to 2012. Our professor, our expert, uh, Professor Duchin did that. She analyzed 52 elections uh, back to 2012 statewide. And in 12 of those elections, Democrats won a majority of the statewide vote. So if you take all three maps, that's 36 elections to analyze across those three maps. And in all 36, of those elections, the enacted plans would deliver a majority of the seats to Republican candidates every time in every chamber, and in none of those, uh, where uh, so long as the margin of victory was within six points, uh, would Democrats obtain a majority in any chamber. That is a severe uh, partisan skew that, as the trial court found, uh, prevents the majority of the people from controlling the general assembly, even when uh, democratic candidates clearly obtain majority support, but the place would like to proportionality.
1: A, how are you not arguing now for proportionality?
3: It's it's not a proportionality argument, Your Honor. Uh, proportionality, proportional representation says that if a party gets you know fifty-two percent of the votes, it should get fifty-two percent of the seats. That's not our argument. Our argument is grounded on the fundamental principle set forth in Section Two of the Declaration of Rights, that uh, government is founded on the will of the people alone, and that when you have maps that systematically prevent uh, a party that wins a majority of votes from obtaining a majority of seats, uh, it it thwarts that basic principle. Um, The place where I Say so,
1: why can't you say that the will of the people is established by the precise language of the Constitution, and that the precise language of the Constitution in Article Two uh, gives the General Assembly the authority to redistrict, and it sets out the objective standards that are to be used. Why isn't that the will of the people?
3: So, Your Honor, I think that goes to exactly the, the place that I wanted to hit, which is the political question doctrine, and in particular whether this is an issue. That by the Constitution's text has been vested in the General Assembly's exclusive, unreviewable discretion, and we submit the answer to that is no, and that the Stevenson case makes clear that the answer is no. It holds that that very same districting authority in Article 2, Sections Three and Five, uh, is limited by the Equal Protection Clause, and what that case says is that it is quote well within the power of the judiciary of a state to require a valid reapportionment, or to formulate a valid redistricting plan. And the Cooper case uh, we'd submit shows why Stevenson answered that question the way it did. So what Cooper explains is that when you have a dispute that turns on a conflict between competing constitutional provisions, those disputes raise questions of interpretation, uh, not political questions and not policy disputes that described the Stevenson case, and we submit that it describes this case too. So, yes, the General Assembly does have authority to draw districts in Article two. But if the General Assembly exercises that authority to entrench itself in power, no matter the will of the people, other constitutional provisions come to the fore. So that includes the.
4: So
1: what would you say is the the standard that a General Assembly must follow? What criteria is to be used in drawing districts?
3: So, obviously, the Constitution sets forth a number of criteria, but the one that we focus on here is the same one that uh, Mr. Jones started with, the principle from the Lattimore case, which is that you ask whether the will of the people, the majority legally expressed, is governing or whether you have a map that's instead systematically preventing a party whose candidates win a majority of votes from obtaining a majority of seats. And on this question about whether there's a judicially manageable standard, I I guess the the other place I would start is to say that a holding. So
1: so let me be clear. So you're advising the General Assembly and what you're telling the General Assembly is precisely what? What what criteria should the General Assembly use in redistricting? Uh, You know, pick them off precisely what you believe needs to be done.
3: Well, of course, you know, just just to be precise, we're not here to tell the General Assembly what they should or shouldn't do or should or shouldn't consider. But the legal standard that we're invoking here
1: with that, the court has got to have a clear standard that we give the General Assembly that, frankly, gives the General Assembly a safe harbor. We did it this way, and therefore we have complied with the Constitution. Otherwise, we're simply making it up should we use the 2019 trial court order as our go by with regard to what standards should be utilized?
3: Sure, so I, I I want to directly answer that question about what our standard is, uh, and then, then come back to a way the court might think about this based on what happened in Pennsylvania. The direct answer to your question is our standard is, you ask whether the will of the people, the majority is governing, and if you have a map that systematically prevents a party whose candidates receive a majority of statewide votes from obtaining a majority of seats, uh, then it violates the principle that we've set forth. And this this principle implementing it is really quite straightforward. It's just arithmetic doesn't yeah, require any
1: assumption is that people will vote in their districts and their both House and Senate, that they will somehow that that those votes somehow should correlate with a statewide vote. But why should we make that assumption?
3: Your Honor, it's it's with respect, it's not an assumption. As Mr. Jones explained, this is something that's well established in the literature and not just that it's a principle that was applied by the legislative defendant's own expert, Dr. Barber, who took the same approach and said that this was a reasonable way of identifying whether a map uh, was a partisan gerrymander. Does
1: it, uh, are, you, are you talking about precision or are you talking about just in general?
3: So, I, I think our standard gets you to a quite precise result, many much more precise, I would say, than you have in many areas of constitutional law. So, you know, the Attorney General's and Governor's amicus briefs cited the Farmer case talking about the speedy trial right. Uh, there, this court enforces that right even though it has also said that it is, quote, impossible to determine exactly when it's been violated. Here
1: we're we're talking about a task specifically assigned by the constitution to a branch of government. Here we get into separation of power issues if. There's not a clear constitutional standard. It's what I'm hearing you say, and correct me if I'm wrong. What I'm hearing you say is the general assembly should use all of its nonpartisan. Drawing criteria. And then after they've done that, go back with some kind of an overlay. Based on some types of statewide. Uh, races that are selected. Uh, either all or some. Uh, and and based on that. If the maps as drawn based on nonpartisan criteria. If the maps as drawn uh, indicate. Uh, some type of uh, partisan advantage, then that's unconstitutional. Is that what you're saying?
3: So, Your Honor, what I would say is that we do think that the General Assembly can and should look at election results. As Mr. Jones explained, the U.S. Supreme Court expressly approved that in the Gaffney versus Cummings case. And that is the only way we submit that you can answer the question that section two of the Declaration of Rights asks and decide whether this is still a government that's founded on uh, the will of the people. Uh, And we have provided a very administrable standard to do that. You can look at page, I think it's 20. (laughs)
1: Define proportionality for me.
3: So so to be clear, again, we do not advocate for proportionality, but the definition.
1: I don't want to get caught up with semantics. So you tell me what you mean by proportionality.
3: So the the core principle we invoke is the principle that uh, Section Two sets forth. It is one of popular sovereignty, of majority rule, uh, to ensure that a majority of uh, North Carolinians can indeed. Uh, shape what laws are passed. I mean, after all, Section 10 of the Declaration of Rights explains that the reason why we require frequent elections is to amend the laws, and that requires that the majority be able to govern. But I do want to circle back, Your Honor, to the Pennsylvania example. I
1: need you to define proportionality.
3: Well, so I guess I have trouble defining proportionality for Your Honor, and I apologize for that because it's not a concept that we use in our argument, and it's not a concept that we uh, are advocating for. I do think proportional representation has a precise definition that says the, per- the percentage of seats that a party gets should precisely track its percentage of the vote. And you know that, again, is not our argument. Um, How
1: is that different than the will of the people argument?
3: Well, because our will of the people principle is one that says a majority of the people should generally be able uh, to elect a majority of the General Assembly, at least so long as that is feasible within the constraints of neutral traditional districting criteria. And we've shown here that you can get pretty, pretty fair within the context of those criteria. We have identified maps that we submitted into the record below that treat each party perfectly fairly in the congressional map. And come pretty darn close in Senate and House. And so, you know, it is possible to vindicate, we think, the promise in section two. Uh, and what those maps show is how far the maps here depart for that, from that ideal when they deliver in, in every Mr. close
5: election. Mr. Shaw, let me Make sure I understand something in the record before your time runs out. What did the trial court find with respect to the consistency with which the criteria, the neutral criteria, uh, were actually applied?
3: So the the trial court found that they, those neutral criteria were not consistently applied. In the congressional map, for example, uh, the map splits more counties than necessary, and it does so precisely to split voters uh, that would vote for Democrats in the state's three largest counties. And there are other criteria that the trial court found are only selectively applied. So, for example, there's a permissive criteria about giving weight to uh, municipal boundaries. And turns out the General Assembly uh, followed that criteria only when it would benefit the incumbent party and not when it would uh, benefit the other party, which I think goes to show that the skew here, as the trial court found, has nothing to do with political geography and has everything to do uh, with partisan gerrymandering. Um, and with that, I, uh, I would like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal.
1: Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from uh, the attorney for the next appellate.
6: May it please the court, Mr. Chief Justice and Associate Justices. My name is Allison Riggs, and I represent Plaintiff Common Cause. I'd like to reserve three minutes for rebuttal. When faced with the obligation to redraw North Carolina's legislative and congressional districts late last year, including an additional congressional district because of population change, the General Assembly, almost from the very beginning of the process, abdicated its duty to comply with the North Carolina Constitution and this court's precedent in Stevenson. The record before you demonstrates conclusively that the legislative majority acted to entrench itself, firewalling itself from uh, losing power, even if voter preferences dramatically changed. And they accomplished that in part by targeting black districts in eastern North Carolina. This court must intervene to protect black voters, to ensure compliance with this court's ruling in the Stevenson line of cases, and to give effect to the North Carolina Constitution's promise that our legislature will have the consent of the governed. This court's already heard from my colleagues on our uh, partisan gerrymandering claims. So I'll be brief in addressing those, except to explain how the court's factual findings on the partisan intent relate to uh, our racial discrimination claims and indeed are two two sides of the same coin, given the current state of political polarization and the preferences of black voters at North Carolina ballot boxes. So in its factual findings to which this court must defer, the trial court made Uh, a number of different findings about the words of the legislature and the actions of the legislature, and it made those findings and they didn't match. So the court below found that the legislature was acting in an intentionally discriminatory manner with respect to voters who prefer Democratic candidates. This finding of improper intent established as part of our partisan gerrymandering case throws legislative deference out the window, and these findings provide a stepping stone to reaching the correct legal conclusion on intentional discrimination claims. And while partisanship is not an immutable characteristic, it is nonetheless legal error in this situation to treat the improper intent with respect to voters' political preferences as separate and distinct from improper intent with respect to race. It's the same body acting at the same time with the same legislation. So on the, the Mr. findings.
5: Ms. Riggs, let me ask to, to, to make sure I understand your argument on this point. The trial court found that, at least as I read the order, that there was no, no intentional racial discriminatory intent but suggested that there were other forms of intent, uh, and if you read the earlier part of its order, that would, you would tend to infer that they were talking about partisan intent. Uh, is partisan intent, in your argument, a proxy for uh, racially discriminatory intent?
6: Yes, uh, our, our evidence and our experts explained how partisan uh, and a desire to partisan uh, discriminate and entrench one's party in North Carolina's political climate is an incentive to engage in racial discrimination because it is so widely known how Black voters vote. So so while the court, the court actually did make findings that support the Arlington Heights analysis of intentional racial discrimination. They said, never has the legislature drawn a congressional district that stretches from Washington County uh, to, to Caswell County. And that's what they did to Congressional District 2, uh, the only underpopulated congressional district in the state, one that elects the Black candidate of choice. They took out Greenville, Pitt County, Gates County, heavily Black areas, and added uh, more predominantly white conservative areas. There's no reason or explanation on the record for that, because the legislature didn't defend its congressional plan. And so when you see these intent findings, the intent um, of partisanship, that's the stepping stone to look at the
7: racial discrimination evidence. And and part of this I, was I, to... I also have a question, if I may, um, that I think is similar to Justice Irvin's question. But um, if the partisan gerrymandering if the extreme partisan gerrymandering the trial court found to exist in all three of these plans were corrected, um, and, and as I understand the legal conservation voters' argument, they have put forward maps that they say do correct and are fair maps do correct the extreme partisan gerrymandering. Does that take care of the um, problem with discrimination against African American voters?
6: It does not, Your Honor. The legislature has avowedly said, we are not going to consider race in redistricting. And they misread the common cause case from 2019 to say that race can't be considered at all. So, yes, while the League of Conservation voters have a a map that did properly consider race, um, it would only be in that case, uh, in the imposition of that map. What this court needs to do Um, in line with uh, our claims under the Declaratory Judgment Act and our intentional discrimination claims is vindicate vindicate that black voters in particular cannot be targeted in order to advance a partisan gerrymander. And to be clear, this legislature could not have enacted as extreme a partisan gerrymander had black districts in eastern North Carolina not been attacked. And let me give you an example of that. Senate District 1, the legislature admitted that it had two legal clustering choices. One was one, and they were told by by citizens, by the legislature that one choice preserved the ability of Black voters to elect their candidate of choice, um, and one did not. Uh, they were told this um, that that if they picked the the one that didn't, they would be draw, They would be destroying a functional crossover district. And the United States Supreme Court in Bartlett v. Strickland said the intentional destruction. Of a functioning black crossover district violate can violate equal protection. So with Senate District One, what the legislature did, despite evidence that there was legally significant racially polarized voting in a in the districts in, in the clusters they ended up picking, uh, despite knowing that there was a black incumbent, um, despite knowing that they'd be destroying a crossover district, they picked the cluster that. Um, where Senator Bazemore uh, is the incumbent. They picked the cluster that excluded Warren and Halifax County. Everyone in this state knows that those are heavily Black counties. They exclude, they they, they picked the one that excluded that and added DARE. Again, everyone in the state knows the demographics of DARE County. And so by doing that, well, before, they picked the cluster.
5: On, before you move on and I want to take a look your time. But you're, in your brief, you discussed the fact that there was no attempt to make Voting Rights Act districts at the first stage the process and, and no formal racial polarization study done. Is it your understanding of the Stevens uh, criteria that Voting Rights Act districts are limited to Section 5 districts? Or does, they, does that requirement include Section 2 districts as well?
6: It would include would include section two, which is the only applicable part of the Voting Rights Act still here in North Carolina.
5: And so it's your your argument is, in essence, that the General Assembly would be required to determine as an initial matter under Stevenson that there was a whether any. uh, Section two districts needed to be required, at least uh, in a predictive fashion before they did anything else. Is that your argument, Your
6: Honor, I. The argument is is that Steven said Stevenson said the first thing you do is draw any districts that are compelled by the Voting Rights Act. In order to decide whether any districts are compelled, you have to look at racial data um, and you have to consider whether racially polarized voting patterns may have changed there were There were a small number of areas in eastern North Carolina that citizens and that uh, legislators, particularly black legislators familiar with that area, pointed out to the legislature and said, you really should do a racially polarized voting study in this area because you're going to violate uh, the Voting Rights Act. And the problem is, is the legislature ignored that. It ignored this court's explicit instructions of how to go about the redistricting process when it was talking about harmonizing the federal constitution and the state constitution and its many provisions. So this this failure to follow Stevenson really goes to and implicates um, the entire ruling of Stevenson. Stevenson and its criteria including clustering can't stand if the legislature is under no obligation to comply with the state supremacy clause from the very beginning. Um, (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) And your honor-
1: Isn't it true that in uh, the 2019 case uh, that the General Assembly had uh, considered racial uh, data in the invalid 2017 maps and uh, uh, basically uh, the trial court uh, held and uh, we didn't do anything on appeal uh, that there uh, that there was no evidence of racially polarized voting at that time
6: any out el- that's not correct that's not what the court held uh, what the what the Covington Court held in 2017 uh, was that in the areas in which the legislature employed its max black packing um, that they hadn't demonstrated, despite pre- the predominant use of race, they hadn't demonstrated legally significant racially polarized voting. But that was based on 2010 census data and election data that is was started from 20 years ago. Yeah, the legislature's duties. The
1: common calls versus Lewis case.
6: I, I, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Yes, I understand. And the common cause case, looking back, um, did not say that there's no uh, racially polarized voting. The common cause court told the pl- told the legislative defendants that they could draw VRA districts, but they'd have to have a good. They'd have to show that legally significant racially polarized voting. So that's been mischaracterized. I'd like to reserve the. Okay. I'd like to reserve my, the balance. Thank you.
1: Thank you, we will now hear from the uh,
5: appellee.
0: May it please the court. Good morning, your honors and counsel. Kate McKnight for legislative defendants. I will use about 15 minutes and cede my remaining time to Mr. Strack. I will address plaintiffs simulations experts and what they show and what they don't show. The lower court was correct in finding at paragraph 567, that even plaintiffs would have to concede that the General Assembly is allowed to draw districts for partisan advantage. This is a quote, the experts analysis does not inform the court of how far the enacted maps are from what is permissible partisan advantage. The standard of review for plaintiffs to overturn that finding
7: is clear error. And plaintiffs okay. must show this course. Ask you about that, the standard of review. Why isn't whether or not and how it is permissible under the state constitution to um, draw maps with a criteria of partisan advantage as opposed to partisan fairness, why isn't that a question of law? that we we have a de novo standard of review
0: well your honor and I'm, I'm i'm discussing here the standard of review of the court's finding about how about a line between what partisan information and what partisan intent and lean is allowed and what partisan
7: Intent and lean is not allowed. Right, I understand that, but when you say is allowed, you mean as a constitutional matter under the North Carolina's the constitutional provisions, the the all elections shall be free, the uh, equal protection clause, the freedom of speech clause of our state constitution. What is allowed is a legal question, isn't it?
0: Well, your honor,
7: I would argue that this
0: this issue, and and I have to beg your honor's pardon, um, a a lot of what you're asking will be addressed by Mr. Strack. Uh, What I'm focused on is plaintiff simulations experts, their limitation and the court's finding below. And I will I will say again that that court's finding is subject to a clear error standard.
5: Miss McKnight, just so I can follow your argument, what was that? What is the finding that you're directing my attention to? Again, this order's got a little length to it, and I haven't got it memorized.
0: I understand, Your Honor. This is at paragraph 567 in the findings of fact.
7: While I'm while I'm
5: finding that in my copy of the order, let me let me ask you sort of a basic question, which is, are the uh, is the argument that you are making with respect to the validity of the uh, plaintiff's expert's simulations, are you, it's not clear to me, frankly, what you're, what, what where are you going with that argument? The court, you, you, the court, you, of course, the findings of fact are deemed binding on us if they're not challenged on appeal. Your clients had not noted. that I couldn't find anything in the record that suggested that your clients had appealed. Therefore, it seems to me that the findings generally. Are uh, binding on the court. Is that wrong?
0: So, the, the finding here is,
5: and I'm I'm talking about the findings generally, we can talk about specific finding now that I've got it in just a second.
0: Sure. I understand. And, and 1st of all, I appreciate that these findings are very long. Right. Um, what we have here is where there are findings of fact and conclusions of law. Those findings of fact are binding on the court unless a challenger is able to come before the court and say, there's clear error. And in order to show clear error, that challenger has to show this court that there is no competent evidence supporting that finding. So to, to go from that general description down to the specific here, what you have here is the lower court telling you that we have found that plaintiffs have not identified any line between what is permissible partisan advantage and what is impermissible. None of their experts did that.
5: Now now that I found the language and I appreciate your directing me to it, this court has any number of decisions that say that just because a court labels something as a finding or labels something as a conclusion, that's not definitive for purposes of review. That instead uh, you have to look at the, the Item itself and determine whether it is a finding or a conclusion. The sentence that you've directed our attention to admittedly is contained in finding of fact number 567. Now that I've located it, uh, that said, is you've described it as a finding. Why isn't that something that would be treated as a conclusion under our case law, even though uh, it's? contained within something labeled a finding of fact.
0: I understand, Your Honor. Let let me address that in two parts. Number one, uh, if it is a finding of fact, whatever the court decides, if it is a finding of fact, we satisfy that easily. There is no competent evidence challenging that finding, which is there's no line here. No line has been identified. None of the experts found it. Even if it is a de novo review, if it's if it's a if it's a more challenging burden to to achieve, we satisfy that too. plaintiffs own experts concede that they never identified any sort of line between what is permissible and what is impermissible. And even it's consistent through their case to the point where you just heard opposing counsel tell you that the comparator here is no partisanship. But the court, this court, knows that that's not the comparator. Cases like Stevenson have told this court that the comparator is not no partisanship. The comparator is how does the enacted plan compare to a plan that is drawn with permissible partisan effect? None of plaintiff's experts can tell you that and whether that's a finding of fact or a conclusion of law, it will not be able to be satisfied here by plaintiffs.
4: Well, the trial court says in its conclusion of law number 145 in expressing agreement with the United States Supreme Court that, quote, excessive partisanship in districting leads to results that are incompatible with democratic principles, unquote. Doesn't that demonstrate that this case is justiciable in terms of our state constitution? Under the free elections clause, I draw this in terms of what you're saying about the fact that the experts have not shown that this was not appropriate, but under a justiciable standard, would this not be considered to be one for our court?
0: I really appreciate your question, Justice Morgan, because it leads to the second reason why plaintiffs' experts have failed and why plaintiffs have failed in this case, which is to say what you just quoted was a sense of extreme partisanship, right? That 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 is incompatible. That word was in what you just described what the lower court said and, and guides this court, too, it says, look, we don't no one has drawn the line. And often the lower court says there's there's some partisan lean, but it's not extreme. That's paragraph 95. It's throughout the it's throughout the opinion. And the issue here, Justice Morgan, if you if you'll let me go go one step further, is so even though plaintiffs, experts aren't, they, they've failed to create an analysis that replicates the legislative process. Okay. So they, they, their analysis does not replicate the legislative process. It does not take into account all the nonpartisan decisions of the legislature. But even so, let's look at what the results of their analysis. The results of their analysis are that on the congressional plan, we're talking about maybe one seat. In the House and Senate plans, it rarely makes a difference. In fact, the enacted plan regularly falls within the range of plaintiff simulations. You would be hard-pressed to look at plaintiff's expert report and find a point where the enacted plan is a true outlier and falls outside.
5: But Ms. McKnight, again, I've read the whole thing, it's over and over and over you find you find findings by the trial court that this, that, or the other district or cluster was an extreme outlier. I think they used that word. They they point to 99.99% or more in many instances. Uh, are those findings binding upon us, too?
0: So, Your Honor, as, as you'll see in our brief, there are a number of points where we think the lower court on the findings of fact, We we beg to differ on certain points
7: of finding and and I understand
5: that, but given that you have not appealed from the order contending or, or or lodged across appeal, what are we supposed to do with your arguments? Essentially contesting the validity of the trial court's findings.
0: Okay. Well, my arguments are actually consistent with the trial court's finding that plaintiffs have not identified a line for this court. The fact that a, an, a task of, of redistricting, which has been committed to the political body of the state and redistricting, there may be no greater political piece of work that a state needs to handle in a given year. That that has been committed to a political body, and there's a, a political effect in map drawing and line drawing. That should be no surprise to anyone. The question here before this court is: Where does it pass from permissible political effect to impermissible?
7: And, and let us ask you about. You, you, where you identify that as the question for this court, I think that's absolutely right. That is a legal question for this court. And as I read the parties' briefs, the, the appellants briefs, they actually suggest a couple of different uh, bright line standards. Um, they uh, safe harbors that this court could adopt. Um, but the fact that there are multiple measures of Um, partisan gerrymandering seems to me to be actually very similar to what courts have traditionally done for many, many years in the racial vote dilution context, where uh, initially when, in 1986, when the Jingles case was decided, um, there were two different ways of proving racially polarized voting, um, extreme case analysis and um, ecological regression analysis. And courts courts allowed parties to use those different analyses to determine whether racially polarized voting was legally significant. There wasn't a bright line, you know, if it's 80% or higher, it's, it's um, racially polarized voting. The court said you look at the totality of the circumstances. And then as that litigation progressed, social political scientists found a third way, ecological inference analysis. And parties came to the courts uh, the way trial courts traditionally do and examined that scientific method and said, yes, that's a way to prove racially polarized voting as well. Why isn't that equally permissible and applicable in the partisan gerrymandering context where there are multiple ways of measuring the extent to which these plans are outliers and extreme partisan gerrymanders and courts trial courts can look at that evidence and and determine in the totality of the circumstances whether it rises to the level of a violation why isn't that acceptable
0: your honor i have very little time so let me let me just offer that plaintiffs have not made any of those showings here and that the results of the expert analysis here is not showing, quote, unquote, extreme partisan outliers. And I, and I beg the court to look for a definition of extreme partisan gerrymander anywhere in case law, in the lower court's opinion. It will not find it, and it certainly will not find it from plaintiff's case. I need to make one final point, and, and that is in response to a question from Justice Irvin, who identified the 99.99% figure. Plaintiffs are fond of repeating the phrase 99.99%, but what the, the, the academic, the mathematician who came up with that figure claims is that no matter how he changed meaningful inputs to his computer program, the enacted plan still came out as this 99.999% outlier. Now there's another theory when a computer analysis spits out the same result no matter how many changes you make to meaningful substantive inputs, maybe that analysis doesn't work. I cede the remainder of my time to Mr. Strack. Thank you, Your Honors.
8: Thank you, Your Honors. May it please the court, Phil Strack for the legislative defendants. Um, let me address one question the, the, the court's been discussing, the trial court's findings, and we were looking at paragraph 567. Uh, let me just point out that in addition to what Ms. McKnight said, that the, the trial court specifically said that the expert analysis doesn't inform the court of how far the enacted maps are from what is permissible. It also went on to say that these analyses do not inform the court of how much of an outlier the enacted maps are. So. It's important that the court uh, consider the fact that when the trial court was making the the, the grouping by grouping uh, findings, it said that they were intentional pro-Republican districts. They didn't say they were extreme Republican districts. They didn't draw any, they didn't make any finding or any conclusion. And in fact, in paragraph 567, they explain why. That they couldn't, that they could not find a way to describe that. Um, they 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 further go on in paragraph 568 to explain further why the expert analyses were not particularly helpful to the court in answering the question that the court thought it had to happen. And that's it said there testimony of the experts that by considering many statewide races across a significant period of time, somehow washes these considerations out is not persuasive. That's what the court was saying. Look, Lots of different factors affect election outcomes. Uh, the, we, we can't, the, these these simulations can't, you can't take the human element. They can't measure the human element. They're not satisfactory to do that. And so these two findings combined by the trial court completely undercut uh, the simula- simulation analyses by the plaintiff, and they demonstrate
7: I'm sorry to interrupt you so early, but I have a question about that. There's been quite a bit of back and forth about um, finding number 567, um, and I'm just wondering why does it matter how far away from what is permissible um, these maps are if they prevent the will of the people from being carried out in accordance with Section 2, and if second, there is an articulable standard for the General Assembly to apply to create maps going forward,
8: Your Honor, uh, the plaintiffs have not presented an articulable standard, and to say that um, the the maps don't comply with the will of the people, we we would re- respectfully submit that that's a circular argument. We you you don't know if they don't comply with the will of the people unless you know that they're quote extreme, because some permissible partisan intent is allowed where that skews away from the will of the people has to be defined. Now, this court could certainly take a stab at defining it, but our argument is, is that respectfully, that would be the court legislating, that would not be the court engaging in a judicial determination.
4: hasn't has the trial court already done that to some extent, Mr. Strack? I'm looking at conclusion of law 31, Uh, in which the trial court said that, to date, an appellate court in North Carolina has not examined the specific question of whether, quote, extreme partisan gerrymandering, unquote, is violative of our state constitution. Isn't that inferentially saying that the trial court, in reaching that kind of conclusion of law, has looked at its findings of fact and determined that extreme partisan gerrymandering does exist?
8: No, your honor. I don't I don't don't read that finding to say that at all. I just read that finding to say that the court is pointing out that no court in North Carolina has addressed this or been able to answer the question. And so
4: it's not a finding. It's a conclusion of law and the conclusion of law is based upon its findings of fact. And so in exploring whether or not there's extreme partisan gerrymandering, isn't it fair to look at that? Conclusion as drawing upon its findings of fact that there's extreme partisan gerrymandering that we have to consider.
8: I don't believe so, Your Honor. I, I think the court was just simply n- noting or pointing out that no court in North Carolina has addressed this issue, and it didn't have an answer for the issue as as, as it made clear in finding 567 and 568. So in order for this court. Just, just,
7: to be cl- just to be clear on the no court question, you mean no appellate court because we, we've had uh, both the legislative and congressional maps redrawn after a trial court applied a standing, a standard of partisan gerrymandering. And we did have a federal district court in North Carolina that found congressional maps to be um, a partisan gerrymander. So, so you, you mean no appellate court has.
8: Your Honor, that's fair. That's, that's absolutely correct. I would point out that the federal case was vacated by the U.S. Supreme Court. And that the the state court uh, decisions in Common Cause and Harper provided uh, no standard. Uh, the, the, the legislature just did the best it could, redrew, and the court approved those. The court approved those districts. Um, so, my point is this: if the court believes it can divine some standard uh, that that no other court, uh, no other appellate court in North Carolina has ever done before, it's going to have to legislate the result because it's got to provide an objective standard or rule that the legislature can follow. It's not just enough to say, oh, just follow the will of the people. There's got to be some definition uh, to that. And so, uh,
5: Mr. Strack, before you move away, let me get you to talk with me a second about something that you just talked about, and I want to get a little more definition from you as to what you meant. Uh, You've said a number of times that if the court developed a standard, it would be acting legislatively rather than in a judicial fashion. Is it your contention that any time the court enunciates a legal standard for the 1st time, it is impermissibly legislated?
8: Uh, No, your honor. uh, Not not at all. But the, the nature of the beast that the court's dealing with now, these redistricting. The court's gonna to have to make several policy decisions that do not currently exist. It's literally gonna to have to create them out of whole cloth in a way that a legislature would normally do. And it's gonna be doing so on a topic that is already politically charged and highly partisan. So for instance, now, the court let me, let, me,
5: let me ask you then if, if you go if I go back and read the analytical framework that was adopted in Stevenson uh the court enunciated a you know, enunciated a standard to try to reconcile a number of different considerations and came up with an, an analytical method for redistricting that uh certainly didn't exist before that decision i don't believe now, your knowledge of case law is probably better than mine but i don't think it did did the stevenson court legislate within your uh use of that term
8: They did not, your honor, because there was a there there was a specific textual constitutional provision that already existed that gave the court the authority to make the decision that they made there in that decision. They were simply saying, how do we take reconcile this specific provision with federal law? And they came up with a set of objective rules to, to do that. And so, no, they were not legislating. That was judicial interpretation of how do we harmonize? state law with federal law that's not what this court would be
5: Assuming, here. excuse me i'm sorry i interrupted you let me let me let you finish first
8: no no i, I was through your honor go right ahead
5: i, I, I apologize i uh, uh, wanted to let you finish but at any rate if if we were to conclude contrary to your argument that one of the constitutional provisions that the plaintiffs have relied on, let's just pick the the free elections clause since it's the first one in most of their list. Assuming for purposes of discussion, we were to conclude contrary to your argument that that uh, clause had some bearing on uh, the general subject matter that we have before us, why would the court not be permitted to uh, determine whatever standard would be appropriate in order to apply that clause, and it, it, you know, and I understand you don't think it should be applied at all. So I'm asking you to assume something that I know you don't agree with.
8: That that's fine, Your, Your Honor. I'm I'm asked to do that all the time, and I'm perfectly perfectly comfortable with it. Uh, I I have the, the the reason, Your Honor, is because to do that. The the, the the unlike the, the whole county provision, which is specific text in the Constitution dealing with the subject matter at hand, the free elections clause is just general vague language. And so the court would have to craft a standard out of whole cloth. And the problem with doing that in a case like this is the court would have to make a number of policy decisions in order to give the legislature an actual rule, an actual standard like that would be objective, like the Stevenson rules, which are very objective, they easily are followed. Um, This court would have to say, legislature, here's how we're going to define partisanship for you. Here's how you measure partisanship. Is it going to be statewide elections? Is it going to be local elections? Is it going to be elections in the past two years? Is it going to be elections in the past 10 years?
7: Can I ask you you, uh, uh, about a couple of other elements in the Stevenson decision? Because Uh, The Stevenson decision also said that the Equal Protection Clause in the North Carolina Constitution um, prohibits the use of multi member districts, even uh, on a kind of on a one person, one vote theory, even though that's not in, there's, there's no explicit provision in the state constitution uh, requiring single member districts, correct? That's correct. And it also um, required that districts be compact and there's no explicit provision in the state constitution requiring geographically compact districts.
8: I didn't read Stevenson as requiring compact districts and it certainly didn't give any specific guidance on what what compactness means
7: didn't it in fact find didn't the court in fact uh, invalidate certain districts uh, in that litigation because they were not sufficiently geographically compact.
8: I believe the trial court did, and I don't think those findings were disturbed, but I don't know that the court does the appellate court ever uh, mandated such.
7: So in so in in the Stevenson case, the court. Implemented general equal protection clause um, protections in the area of redistricting, right?
8: That's incorrect. There there was there was never a map drawn that combined multi member and single member districts. So that was never uh, the court talked about that, but that was never actually done by the legislature. So that never came up. Otherwise, the court was simply harmonizing the specific textual provision of the whole county clause with federal law. That's 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 what the Stevenson court was doing. This court would have a much different task on its hand if it was going to tackle the issue of what sort of a standard should apply to partisan gerrymandering claims, particularly in light of the fact that the trial court just couldn't do it. And they, they, they couldn't do it. And, and the plaintiff's experts have been not, no help to the court on that issue either. Um, the, the court, for instance, there's a lot of talk about cracking and packing of voters. This court would have to provide guidance to the legislature. What does that actually mean? Uh, do you have to uh, unpack certain voters to not crack others? And, 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 and what, what do those terms mean? Um, what's a what's a fair map look like? What is a map that actually, quote, complies with the will of the people? Is it is it uh, a map that's uh, complies with proportional representation? How do you measure that? Do you use the efficiency gap? Do you use the mean median test? Do you use a declination test? Uh, and if you use any of those tests, what what, what what does the legislature have to do to make sure it has a passing score uh, under those? And so uh, and, and, and how will the court define What is extreme versus permissible? And uh, let me just expand upon a point that Ms. McKnight was making uh, regarding these simulations, even with the plaintiffs experts analysis. It's clear that the number of districts at issue in this case, in this case, is marginal at best. Uh, She mentioned uh, Dr. Chin's analysis, which shows that you would expect nine Republican congressional seats and there's allegedly 10 in the enacted map. One district, that's extreme. I think that's, I think that's a hard thing to say. Um, with regard to the uh, Dr. Pegden, regarding the congressional districts, he argues for 5.8 Democratic seats uh, compared to 4.69 in the map. That's, that's barely one. In the State House plan, he argues for 55.5 Democratic seats compared to 52.85 in the enacted plan. That's just, that's not even a handful. In the state senate, he argues for 22.3 Democratic seats compared to 21.67 seats that are in the enacted plan. So these these are these are small uh, differences, and this court would have to make a policy decision about: are, is that extreme? Is two seats extreme? Is three seats extreme? What about ten? We don't. The court would have to provide that policy decision to the legislature to implement. Um,
4: Well, while you say that these are policy decisions, uh, I know the U.S. Supreme Court said in Rucho that uh, political questions related to gerrymandering are beyond the reach of the federal courts, but it specified federal courts, not beyond the reach necessarily of state courts. So in the sense of looking at our North Carolina Constitution, doesn't the Constitution as we are to interpret it as a court allow us to be able to go into this aspect in terms of looking at the free election clause and some of the other matters that are invoked uh, by this case, and operate, albeit you couch it in terms of policy, we couch it in terms of looking at the constitutionality of it all.
8: Your Honor, I I appreciate that we will have a difference of opinion on that. Um, And obviously, what the court says is what's going to ultimately matter, not what I say. But it's our opinion, respectfully, that the court would be engaging in policymaking. And it's you mentioned Rucho, and it's important to note, when, when the when the, when the the uh, Rucho case said, hey, state constitutions may have something to say about this, they pointed to two different things. The first was some states have created redistricting commissions. And so those commissions obviously are one way to deal with this issue. The court also pointed to constitutions in states like Florida that have specific language addressing partisan gerrymandering, not they didn't cite any of these states where they just have this broad free elections clause. They cited a state that had a specific amendment to the Constitution, an amendment that was voted on by the people. So the people of Florida decided we want to do something about this and this is what we're going to do. That's not been done in North Carolina. This court would be doing it for the people. Uh, It would not be interpreting an act of the people. Um, That's that's the basis of our of our argument and
7: let me me question the that argument in um, and, you know, there are three different uh, places in our state constitution where the um, plaintiffs say that it actually does provide robust protection. And so uh, let me ask you about the equal protection clause and um, I, I, I assume you would agree that the state equal protection clause protects black voters from intentional racial discrimination and redistricting?
8: Uh, correct, as well as federal law.
7: Right, but you would, you would agree that our state equal protection clause covers that. I, and, would
8: assume, I would assume so.
7: And so my question then is, why shouldn't our state constitution equal protection clause also protect people from discrimination um, on the intentional discrimination on the basis of party affiliation? Why isn't that equally a equal protection violation that impacts a fundamental right, the right to vote?
8: It, it, it's a fair question, Your Honor. Here's my answer to two reasons. Number one, uh, when it comes to race, race is, is an immutable characteristic. Partisanship is not. Uh, number two, uh, when when the Constitution, when the Equal Protection Clause protects of uh, discrimination on the basis of race, It's doing that with regard to uh, individual voting rights. It's not giving group rights. And there there is there's no basis in our opinion for this court to prefer Republicans and Democrats over other people and create a new right for them based solely on uh, partisan preference, which changes all the time, uh, including sometimes within the same election. So we don't think that
7: let me ask you about both of those. So why would it matter that um, the base that the party affiliation can change if there is discrimination, right? I mean, just because a, a, an individual voter can change their party affiliation to escape the discrimination. How does that still make it? How does that somehow make it no longer a protected interest to be free from discrimination?
8: Because at that point, you're creating a right for a group, a group right, and that is a that's a concept that's foreign to our Constitution and the
7: U.S. Constitution. So so let me so let me ask you about group rights, because um, certainly in the vote dilution context, um, that that is a question about whether or not um, a, a The group whose vote is being diluted that is a group, right? So, even in the 1 person, 1 vote context um, where you're trying to make sure that districts are the same size so that everyone has the same voting strength that that it's still about voters as a as a group and, and particularly. So, for example, under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, um, the question is whether African American voters as a group can elect their candidate of choice, not whether any particular individual Black voter can elect their candidate of choice. So, isn't that, doesn't that distinction kind of break down in the elections context
8: respectfully, your honor? No, Uh, we, we think that the Voting Rights Act was meant to protect individual rights uh, and in particular with with malapportionment that protects the individual right of each voter to have an equal vote uh, compared to his or her uh, uh, other other voters. And so we think those are individual rights, not, not, not group rights. Um,
7: well, so let me turn to the individual right that um, also is alleged to be violated here, and that's the free speech right. And I assume that you would agree that if the General Assembly passed a law saying that, um, individuals can give $5,000 to any Republican candidate, but they can only give $2,000 to any Democratic candidate. That, that would be um, impermissible viewpoint discrimination under the state's constitution's um, guarantee of freedom of speech and association, wouldn't it?
8: I, I don't know. But what I do know is that if, if, if it was a violation of anything, it would be a violation of each individual voter's right to, to 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 give that money, it wouldn't be a right held by Republicans or Democrats. It would be a right held by individual voters.
7: Exactly. So when the General Assembly redraws districts to give more uh, ability to elect and more influence to one group to to a voter because they're a, who are is a Republican versus a voter who is a Democrat, why isn't that? A um, violation of their individual freedom of speech and association.
8: Respectfully, Your Honor, I think that's a, a circular argument. We we don't know if it's giving more power to Republicans or Democrats unless we know what the line is. If there if if there's a line between what's permissible and impermissible, and something is therefore extreme or not extreme, you you can't even get. I don't believe we can even get to the question you're asking unless the court can provide. That line, and then decide whether the maps that were passed actually cross that line. We don't think that's been done here. It's not been shown, and in fact, the computer simulation, uh, the, the the danger of the computer simulation uh, method, is 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 in is in this case. So, for instance, um, in the Senate Guilford Rockingham County grouping, the evidence is undisputed that Democrats drew the districts. Uh, in that grouping. And the, the, they, they drew those districts. They also stood up on the floor and said that they were fair districts and there was nothing wrong with those di- districts. Nonetheless, the simulation, the computers say that those are partisan gerrymanders. How can that be true? That can't be true. How can it be true that uh, districts drawn by Democrats are allegedly pro Republican gerrymanders? just because the computer says it, it, the computer can't measure the human element. The computer doesn't know that Democrats drew those districts. It can't distinguish or tell uh, and, and, and assess the human element of that. And that's what the trial court was saying. They were saying, look, you, you can't take the human element out of this. These, this. This mathematical stuff doesn't get it done, and in our opinion, the simulations are not ready for prime time. They they can't they can't help the court figure out how to deal with the human element of redistricting versus uh, the, the 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 political element of, of redistricting. In the in the Senate Cumberland Moore grouping, um, the districts that were drawn by NCLCv, which are of course the plaintiff in this case, uh, are identical are identical to the enacted maps. So so. So the the maps of a plaintiff suing over the maps are identical to the enacted maps, but the enacted maps are allegedly a pro Republican gerrymander. Well, does that mean that the LCV maps are a pro Republican gerrymander? Well, so the computer's telling you, yeah, it's pro Republican gerrymander, but the the LCV maps are the same. That just can't be true. The the computer simulations are going to lead the court uh, down a down a bad down a bad path. The same is true in the Iredell Mecklenburg Senate grouping. Uh, They challenged Senate District 37 as an extreme partisan gerrymander. Uh, But the NCLCV map is nearly identical to the enacted map. And so they were trying to draw a pro Republican uh, gerrymander. I just I don't think that's obviously that's not that's not the case. And there are example after example all over the map where these things occur. And so uh, the, the, the court w- would do well, we think, not to rely on these simulations that produce absurd results that can't be true because they can't measure the human element.
4: Well, in discounting the uh, the simulations and elevating the, the human element, uh, that takes me back to the, the common cause uh, argument uh, through Ms. Riggs. Uh, the human element would have the identification that uh, black voters primarily have been associated with 1 political party. And yet I've heard the representation made by the defendants that it just so happens that uh, the way that the. uh, Legislature drew lines that it was not based on race. It was based on a political. Uh, parties that the legislature had a right to do that. Uh, how do we, on one hand, disassociate the human element as you want us to do on the simulations, but on the other hand, not disassociate the human element as to black voters as to the political opportunity for the legislature to draw the lines?
8: Well, Your Honor, uh, There's been no there's been no violation shown uh, on any racial theory. Uh, Certainly, the trial court didn't accept it. Uh, There was no racial data used. So it was not possible to to discriminate against minorities without that data. And the legislature didn't use political data either. They used neutral criteria, which they talked about and they testified about uh, that the trial court lays out in its opinion. And so certainly
5: Mr. Track, before you go on with there, it didn't. It, it seemed to me there were numerous findings in the uh, uh, the order at various points that these neutral criteria were not in fact followed on a consistent basis. That uh, it, is that a misreading of the order?
8: I think it, it certain, certainly, certainly important. Yes, Your Honor. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to mention that there was a, there was an allegation that uh, 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 they used municipal lines where they, you know, supposedly where they benefited them and where they didn't. There's that's actually a more nuanced point to that. The Senate consistently used municipal lines to draw districts, and I think the trial court so found in the House. They followed municipal lines, except where they were copying districts that prior courts had approved. And so, is, there was is some. It, is, it
5: not, is it not also true that there is a finding in the order that the municipal boundary criteria was was applied in an inconsistent fashion?
8: I believe that it's fair to say that's what the finding says. I believe the I believe the 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 nuance behind that finding is that. In the house, because they were drawing districts that were approved by prior courts, those districts didn't always follow municipal lines. And the court trial court recognized that in the house that they often did follow prior court approved districts. Which
5: well, we, are, we are we are bound, of course, by the trial court's finding whether uh, one party or the other thinks that the finding was a fair representation of the evidence,
8: aren't we? Yes, Your Honor, but I'm all I'm saying is there's more nuance behind that finding and if I had time to go into the opinion, I would try to dig that out. But I'm just saying there's more nuance behind that finding and what's interesting uh, is that the, the districts that were approved by the court in common cause that were basically almost nearly identical copied over this time. Those are being challenged as partisan gerrymanders because the simulations say so again, it doesn't make any sense. So, our our concern, Your Honor, is that these simulations, this computer evidence, which is really all the plaintiffs have, that's all they have. There's no direct evidence of anything. They rely on the simulations that they are alluring on the surface, but they are destined to cause this court more problems than they can solve. And how do we know that? Because, in our opinion, respectfully, the damage to this court has already begun. The mere possibility that this court may strike down the redistricting plans has already led some in the public to start treating the court like a legislature, not a court. Some groups are literally running ads lobbying this court to throw out the enacted districts in a CBS news article posted January 25th. Meredith college political science professor David McLennan made this observation about the situation. What we're all experiencing. This is a quote is the increased emphasis on the courts as being a political operation. The courts are seen as partisan as the legislature and the executive branch. So I think people are just approaching the court system so differently. They're talking about court cases as if they were bills in the legislature.
7: Mr. Stuck, isn't our obligation to read the state constitution and give effect to its provisions, whatever the public may or may not think about that?
8: Your Honor, uh, the, the, we don't believe that those provisions address partisan gerrymandering, and apparently there are members of the public that think that if this court does, uh, that 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 won't be fair either. And so uh, the well, the court has why, why,
7: why is that a valid consideration for us?
8: The court the court has an obligation, Your Honor, uh, to to interpret the law as it's written, and it also has an obligation to protect the reputation of the court. And it's clear that already people, because of the even the existence of this case, people are already beginning to uh, review the court as another partisan actor on a partisan stage. And this court has the ability to make sure that that doesn't happen and nothing in the constitution.
1: Thank you, you, Mr. Strack. I'm afraid your time has expired.
8: Thank you, Mr. Chief Chief Justice.
1: We'll hear rebuttal.
2: Thank you, Your Honor. Two quick points. First, on the trial court's factual findings subject to clear error review, I'll refer refer this court to paragraphs 115 to 566 of the decision that find extreme partisan intent and effect consistently across all three maps. Paragraph 140 finds as many as four congressional seats shifted. Paragraph 142 on the House and Senate maps is important. Our standard is partisan intent and effect, not general fairness, not proportionality, not some generalized will of the people test. It is partisan intent plus effect. The Thank trial you. court Thank found. You. Thank you, you
1: Council. Your time is expired.
7: Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor.
3: I'm, I'm going to try to make three quick points in my time first. Again, nobody here on the plaintiff side contends um, as proportional representation would require that when Democrats win 53 percent of the vote statewide, they should get 53 percent of the seats. That's proportional representation. But a party that routinely wins 53 percent of the votes statewide should not be systematically condemned to minority status. That's the injury we complain of here. It is the systematic destruction of majority rule. And that, by the way, is also the test we think this court and the General Assembly should apply going forward, that the party that wins more votes should have at least a fighting chance to win most of the seats. And by the way, that is much the same as what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court did under its own free elections clause, where it held that, quote, all voters should have an equal opportunity to translate their votes into representation. And it applied that-
1: I, I, I hate to interrupt you in rebuttal, but that's a free and fair election clause, correct?
3: Uh, That is true, but both clauses derive from the 1689 English Bill of Rights, which referred to only three elections and was.
1: We have free. We don't have fair. They have free and fair. Correct?
3: Uh, That is true. But this court also has the equal protection clause, which Stevenson interpreted to require substantially equal voting power, substantially equal legislative representation and equal representational influence. So we think you get to the same place. And the other point I want to make is that the differences between the enacted plans and that kind of fair map are not small. We've identified this via our demonstrative, demonstrative maps below. And if you look at the histograms created by uh, using the ensembles and methods of the legislative defendant's own expert, Dr. Barber, this is page uh, 30 and 31 of our brief, you see the difference is three congressional seats, that's 21%. Four Senate seats, that's eight percent, seven House seats, that's six percent. And these maps, by the way, better comply with traditional district criteria like compactness and the like. Uh, The last point I want to make is that this court really is uh, the only check here. Elections can't provide a check. The governor can't provide a check. Amendments aren't available. And it will only get worse if this court gives the General Assembly a blank check. Thank you. Thank you
1: for the rebuttal.
6: Briefly, your honors, uh, to be clear, these maps, mu- the enacted maps, must be struck down as as unconstitutional partisan gerrymanders. But the court still needs to reach the declaratory judgment act question, so that when in reme- in remedial proceedings or in further legis- in further redistricting, the legislature cannot defy this court's instructions in Stevenson. I want to uh, uh, the I want to make a, a point about the fact that no one, including Mr. Strack, um, contests that the court in Stevenson was not legislating from the bench. I disagree about the textual basis. Um, The whole county provision says no county shall be divided. And yet what the Stevenson court in Stevenson 2 did said maximize the number of one county uh, groupings, two county groupings, three county groupings, four county groupings, Um, That doesn't have a textual basis, but that is what the court did, and it wasn't legislating from the bench. Ironically, the the legislature relied on our, our expert, Dr. Mattingly, to run the algorithm to determine the county groupings, but now they want to indict those same algorithms and experts for not reaching the legal conclusion that this court is required to reach. And, and specifically to the Free Elections Clause, Article 1, Section 10 says elections need to be free without hindrance or impediment. And that's been interpreted to require the consent of the government. That is sufficient textual uh, basis for the court to say non-responsiveness, which all okay, experts uh, agree, uh, I'm non-responsiveness I'm sorry, Johnson, violates
1: it. council I think uh, i heard because... Article or Section 10 says, all elections shall be free. You had other language. That's not in our Constitution, is it?
6: I believe without hindrance or impediment is. I'm sorry if I'm, I misquoted. But no, regardless of- are,
1: the... are you saying that without hindrance or impediment is in our Constitution?
6: I'm sorry, Your Honor. I, I I thought it- I thought it was, but I could be mistaken on that. But ultimately, this court's interpretation of the free elections clause and the consent of the government is sufficient textual basis for the, the this court to say maps that are not only extreme in what they produce, but are highly non-responsive, uh, do not allow the consent of the governed. We don't think there needs to be a bright line on liability. These are gross constant, gross partisan gerrymanders. But if this court does want a safe harbor, Common Cause and the governor, as Amicus, provided a, a, a standard applicable to the one person, one vote, um, uh, rebuttable presumption that would give this court, that give the legislature guidance, and they could use the same algorithms from that they've used before.
1: Thank you, counsel.
0: I'm you're Thank you. Oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess until the next calling of the calendar. God save the state and this honorable court.